But I mean, there are all kinds of things we need to provide in tandem with these attestations. They're not just taking the word of Chinese entities for it, for obvious reasons. They can sign whatever affidavit they want and falsify it. So you have to provide invoices, billing information, packing slips, all kinds of documentation that'll be relevant to show the provenance of the goods and whether or not it involves an entity that's been designated by the government for inclusion on what's called the UFLPA list, which is a notorious list of people who employ forced labor in their products. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Well, I'm really happy to have back with us our expert on trade compliance, who's a person in hot demand these days, Alex Katoya. Alex, welcome. Thanks to have you back here. Alex manages all of our trade compliance work at Volkoff Law and appears probably have seen him on a lot of podcasts. He writes a lot. But welcome, Alex. Thanks for coming here to talk about this important issue. Hey, thanks, Mike, for having me again. So the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, and the reason that I wanted to sort of talk to you, Alex, is both of us have seen an uptick in enforcement. And I actually attended last year a a customs webcast concerning the enforcement of this act, and they promised more aggressive enforcement, and they're delivering on it, at least like the last quarter and into this year, we're hearing many more cases where cargoes and shipments have been detained. So I thought if you could just give everybody just a brief overview of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act and why it's becoming, and then, you know, you and I can talk about just why it's becoming a bigger issue. And then we'll talk about practical ways to avoid problems, but go ahead, turn it over first to you, Alex. All right. So thanks, Mike. Well, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act which we'll call the UFLPA because Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is a mouthful. That's 30 minutes in the podcast right there. That's exactly right. So it was enacted by the Congress uh, really to combat the scourge of human trafficking and forced labor, specifically in the Xinjiang region of the People's Republic of China. As we all know, that region has been really fertile ground for the exploitation and persecution of the ethnic minority Muslim population. And we know that all this is done with the full complicity of the Chinese government, which makes it even worse. You know, the underlying premise of the UFLPA is that it creates a rebuttable statutory presumption that all goods manufactured, produced, or mined in Xinjiang have ties to forced labor. So under the law, the onus then shifts to the importer of record, or the IOR, to demonstrate to CDP's satisfaction that they were not the product of forced labor. And you have to do that by clearing convincing evidence, which in a legal standard means more compelling than not. One thing I've been surprised by is the number of products that seem to fall under scrutiny here. I'm talking about, it's not just the silica, I think, that's used for solar panels, but it extends into a whole range of areas that I never knew actually would source 
from that. We've actually have a client that had a food product, for example, being potentially an issue. And I, I've noticed, and I don't know if you're aware of this or really looked at it. I haven't looked at it in great detail, but they have provided some guidance with regard to product areas or areas that they're suspicious of to begin with. Have you seen that same sort of publication or something out there by the CPB? The, the, uh, yeah, I think it's in the strategy that Congress mandated as part of the UFLPA passage, and they address a, a range of agricultural commodities and things that are manufactured and produced. And I think the tendency was for people to think that this is a region of China that's not very sophisticated, and so therefore we're just dealing with agricultural commodities. But as you pointed out, Mike, UFLPA strategy makes it clear that we're dealing with things that are a little bit more sophisticated as well. And what's unusual to me is, you know, unlike other areas where, let's say, uh, you know, the government comes in to meet a burden, here the burden is on the importer, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the importer of record, right? Not the end user, not the consignee, let's say or the person who's getting the product, but it's on the importer to meet a statutory burden to show that it doesn't come from that area. That's exactly right. And I think these statistics, and I could be wrong, my memory could be misserving me, but I, I know it's in the billions. Billions of dollars of commodities have been seized or detained by CVP since the UFLPA has been enforced, I think it was in the summer of 2022. So we're talking about a big proportion of commodities that have been imported here. And the process itself, for example, we have one client who is the recipient, in other words, not the importer of record, but they have not received the materials that they need. And it's going on three to four months that the items have been detained at, let's say, the LA Harbor. And that raises a whole host of issues, obviously, for your supply chain and your planning and whatnot. And this seems to me to be like, you know, the U.S. flip side. We hear about how the EU is raising regulations and burdens and scrutiny with regard to supply chains. This to me is, you know, the U.S. focus because we don't have a general sort of supply chain regulation type statute. We might never, right? I mean, because the, the political yeah. circumstances are such that the parties are at odds with each other. I can't imagine anything like that getting passed in Congress. So I think this is probably the best we're going to get in the current political environment. And I think CPB recognizes that, and they're making this a high priority for enforcement because it's sort of a bipartisan issue. You know, everybody agrees that we shouldn't be using forced labor products and going from there. So, so let's say you are an importer of record with regard to something, and you're getting some supplies from some Chinese vendors. All I can think of is being proactive, sort of our philosophy, but documentation is being really important. How do you look at this and what kind of sources do we have to guide us in this area when you're advising a client on, let's make sure we don't get into trouble here? Yeah. So the chief resource here is really CVP's operational guidance for importers that was published in the summer of 2022 around the time that... CBP began to enforce the legislation. And that's really a critical resource for knowing how to navigate the complexity of the law. Generally speaking, there are, there are two broad categories of cases that are fall under the statute. The first is where the commodity is absolutely sourced from Xinjiang, but forced labor was not involved. 
The second scenario is where the good in question has no discernible connection to Xinjiang. So in the latter case, or circumstance where the commodity is uh, has no ties to Xinjiang, then the importer has to furnish CBP with supply chain tracing information that demonstrates uh, that forced labor was not used along the entire production line. So we're talking from the sourcing of raw materials all the way through final manufacture. And this description can be extremely painstaking because of the need to identify each and every supplier and to provide evidence, typically in the form of an affidavit or attestation, that you know attests to the fact that the production of the goods was not made with forced labor. And so the second case is even more problematic than the first. And the second case is the circumstance where your product comes from Xinjiang, but forced labor was not used. Not only do you have to provide supply chain tracing information, but also information on workers and every entity involved in the production of goods, such as wage and payment information and credible audits that identify the forced labor indicators and remedial efforts that those entities have undertaken. So all of this really imposes a tremendous burden on organizations who rely on imports from China. And in the absence of meeting that clear and convincing standard, your goods can and will be detained and excluded from entry altogether. And just in the way you described that, Alex, so if a client comes in or a company comes in and they say, look, we have certifications, we have attestations from everybody in our supply chain that they did not use forced labor, that's a really regular tool we use in compliance. And we use that with third parties. We use that with all of this. And oftentimes we're satisfied with that. And what's clear to me is I'm not sure that in either of those cases, that's going to be sufficient. You know, just providing these basic compliance certifications. And do you share that same concern as to either of those two situations? In either circumstance, I do share the concern because if you look at the CBP operational guidance, it contains a lot more material than what we're discussing today. It would take, you know, forever to get through. But I mean, there are all kinds of things that you need to provide in tandem with these attestations. They're not just taking the word of the Chinese entities for it for obvious reasons. They can sign whatever affidavit they want and falsify it. So you have to provide invoices, billing information, packing slips, all kinds of documentation that'll be relevant to show the provenance of the goods and whether or not it involves an entity that's been designated by the government for inclusion on what's called the UFLPA list, which is a notorious list of people who employ forced labor in their products. Yeah. And what's interesting also, Alex, about that is to even get to every part of your supply chain in China. I mean, come on, it's really difficult. It's hard to get more beyond than just the basic certification. We were involved in a situation where we saw these types of certifications. But to me, you know, the one thing that I've seen or I've grown skeptical about is people now are much more willing to sign certifications without even, you know, recognizing what it really entails. Yeah. yeah frankly, Mike, sometimes they're not worth the paper they're written on because right. I think so many people have a tendency to sign off on them and say, yeah, yeah, we're complying with it just to consummate the deal. And that's not something that's going to be sufficient here. And that's why I think, you know, part of this too, in addition to collecting the attestation in leveraging contractual provisions, don't accept standard contractual provisions that don't address forced labor. You have to insist that forced labor is a critical uh, material element of any definitive agreement you reach with the supplier in China. But it also comes with, I think, an attendant obligation to educate these suppliers on what forced labor is 
why it's such a, a big issue right. and how they can mitigate that. Right. And then even take a step back. In one case I was involved with recently, we're also seeing some sort of defensive postures taken by Chinese entities. In other words, Alex, we had a situation where a company was trying to claim that it wasn't providing or located in the Uyghur area, and they incorporated a separate company outside the area. And then they provided that information to the purchaser, to our client, and said, we're not even in that area, so don't worry. This was for solar panels material for a renewable business here in the United States. And it turned out that when you looked at the beneficial ownership of the company, lo and behold, guess who owned it? It was a company that was connected to, to the Uyghur area. And yeah. this is the way that they're right now, for example, trying to avoid being detected and falling under these documentation requirements that you're talking about. And so this is just another reason for what we say, do due diligence, find out the beneficial owners, don't just take uh, representations that you get from the business, you know, that the business is given from these Chinese entities. So this is just a really- And that's really- it at all because we do have several clients that deal with entities in China and they're taking the position that if you want to do business with them, you're going to abide by their laws. And if that's the position you're going to take, especially with respect to this region, you're better off not doing business in that region because you're going to expose yourself to circumstances and situations where your goods are going to be detained, you're going to be incurring fines and penalties, and you know, you're going to cause major disruptions to your supply chain. So if they're taking the intransigent approach, my advice is not to go with them. Now, but many of our clients are in situations where they're not the importer of record. So now they're going to the importer of record and saying, well, look, we want to make sure that you're not dealing with Uyghur forced labor, and we need to get certifications from you as to that. And so you'll see U.S.-based companies with connections to the Uyghur area. And so my question about that is, you know, there's a limit as to how far you can go because the importer at some point will say, hey, you know, if you don't like it, I'm telling you what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, pound sound. But I think it's important to know what to look for and the two categories that you went through in terms of can you provide us some assurances with regard to this? And if so, show us some basic information in this area to satisfy us and beyond going just to the certification route. Now, a lot of that depends on what you think is the integrity of the procurement unit. And it can be a a procurement unit that flags the issue for you, and then you can work with them in the legal and compliance field to put together sort of a package of things that you need. But you're always running a risk in this sense. You know, CPB may be way in front of us in terms of what they're looking at and why they're looking at a certain importer. So it's a a real issue to look at for managing your supply chain. Absolutely. And then, you know, I envision as CBP gets more aggressive with enforcement, it's going to cause major supply chain disruptions. In tandem with everything else that's going around the world with, you know, the Red Sea and shipping, I think it's going to compound the situation overall. So, I mean, you know, I think for people who are going to be the end consignee and they're relying on the importer of record to make sure these goods are not made with forced labor, it's really important to engage with them one-on-one, let them know your expectations. Look at the CBP operational guidance. It's probably about, 
well, I don't, I don't know, 20, 30 pages long, but it contains really important details in the types of documents that you'll need to provide to satisfy CBP in the event that you run into one of these situations. And then the overall UFLPA strategy, which is produced by the Department of Homeland Security, also contains very useful information that breaks down the products or categories of products, if you will, that pose the highest risk. And if you happen to deal in those products, then obviously you want to focus on those. All right, Alex. Well, that sounds terrific. Thank you so much. If somebody wants to get in touch with you for questions and help on this area, how do they reach out to you, Alex? Yeah, they can reach me at my email address at akatoya, that's A-C-O-T-O-I-A, at volkofflaw.com. Fantastic. Alex, thank you so much. We'll bring you back for more on the trade compliance. As you know, I'm predicting this is a big year for uh, criminal enforcement. So you could be in hot demand, as they say, for comments, suggestions, and lessons learned. So we're looking forward to a big year. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll keep our clients out of trouble, but we want to watch what DOJ is up to this year. Absolutely, Mike. Well, thanks for having me again, and we'll, we'll see you soon. Okay. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com. 